2: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. As we prepare for the Women's March on Washington on Saturday, we recall that Donald Trump may be the most unpopular person ever to become president. He may have lost the election by almost 3 million votes. But don't underestimate Trump. That's what Katha Pollock says. We'll speak with her later in the show. Also, Trump said he wants to open up libel laws to make it easier to sue newspapers and websites that criticize him. Can he do that? What's going to stop him? We'll ask David Cole. He's the new national legal director of the ACLU. But first, the prospects for resistance. Trump becomes president Friday at noon, so what do we do now? For that, we turn to Fran Piven. She's a hero of ours. She teaches political science and sociology at the City University Graduate Center in New York. She's known for combining academic work and political action as a strategist and theorist of protest movements. She's written many books, including the bestsellers Poor People's Movements and Why Americans Don't Vote, and more recently, Challenging Authority, How Ordinary People Change America. Barbara Ehrenreich said that book is, quote, like a Molotov cocktail in an elegant crystal decanter. Friend Piven, welcome.
3: I'm glad to talk to you, John.
2: So lots of people have ideas about what is. To be done, we need to do something about the Electoral College to make sure that it reflects the winner of the national political vote. We need to reconstruct the Democratic Party, take it away from Wall Street. We need to end gerrymandering (laughs) of the House. We need to restore voting rights. We need to restrict the role of big money in our elections. What do you think of all these proposals?
3: I'm for them, every one of them. And I'll sign the petitions, but the question is, how does our side, which is very big, bigger than the other side in terms of the numbers of people, uh, but how does it exercise real political influence now that, through whatever uh, machinations, the right controls all of the branches of national government, and really has tremendous influence over what you might call the propaganda apparatus of American politics, Fox News, CNN. So this leads me, like a lot of other people, to think about social movements. Well, I always think about social movements.
2: Yes. You say in your piece in the nation, all organizing is local. What does that mean in this context?
3: all organizing is local because ordinary people are local. They live in neighborhoods, they work in workplaces, and their contacts are with their neighbors or their co-workers. And that's where they form their ideas, they form their actions, their collective actions, and where they also develop their understanding of what's wrong and what could be right. So The nitty-gritty of organizing has to be local, but it's also the case that this local organizing has gained a lot of its morale or its discouragement from its impact on or from its relationship to electoral politics, and if we look at the national government at this point in time, unusually, the right wing now controls every branch of government. They control all of what we in political science sometimes call the famous veto points in the American governmental structure, which ordinarily makes it hard to get anything done, but now it's gonna make it hard to stop anything. So on top of that, uh, the right wing controls more than half the states, and they control all branches of, the, of these state governments. That means that the, the, the kind of dynamic with, through which social movements sometimes grow, gain morale, gain courage, the dynamic of interaction with elected politicians, that dynamic is significantly reduced because tr- the Trump people, or the Paul Ryan people, or the Supreme Court. Nobody is going to respond to the social movements in a way that encourages them. I don't know about you, but last night I watched one after another of the documentaries that are being shown on the civil rights movement in honor of Martin Luther King's birthday. And what emerges from these documentaries is, yes, the Southern Civil Rights Movement was rooted in the small towns and cities of the white South. And these remarkable people banded together to challenge what was really a kind of all-encompassing white power system that shaped their lives. But they, in the process, they, in a way, connected with the federal government. Now, the reason they connected with the Democratic, by the way, federal government is because an increasing number of rural blacks had migrated to the cities, and Democratic presidents really needed those urban black votes.
2: You know, there's a big difference between the civil rights movement of the of the 60s and today, and that is that they had, as you say, Democrats in the White House and Democrats in Congress. They were putting pressure first on Kennedy, and then on LBJ, we are not in that situation today, As, and I'm sure you've thought about the difference. So,
3: is there any way that protest movements, a big resistance movements, movement to a very powerful juggernaut that's taken over the national government, is there any way that this hypothetical movement, still hypothetical... Uh, can gain the kind of morale and encouragement that the civil rights movement gained from the federal, from Democratic national presidents. And I think the, there may be a kind of an answer, not as good as having the president, but a kind of answer in the liberal big cities. Uh, it's noteworthy that the mayors of Seattle, Boston, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, have been quite boldly defiant of Trump's threats to the cities. And so there is some electoral movement synergy that's possible. But whether you're trying to stop things or transform institutions. Movements have to be able to exercise the kind of power which I think is the elemental power of protest movements, the power to refuse to cooperate in the day-to-day functioning of institutions in which ordinary people play crucial roles as workers, as students, simply as obedient pedestrians. To exercise that power takes courage, and it takes encouragement. And that's why the liberal cast of big city governance is of some importance. Maybe that can help us in what is a very, very scary prospect.
2: The day after the election, there were spontaneous protests in the streets in many of our big cities. What did you think of those?
3: Well, I thought that they were they were great. Uh, you know, I I think we have to do a little bit of sort of sorting about aspects of protest. Yeah. Part of what happens when people join together in a movement is they show themselves to each other. They gain courage by knowing there are other people in the same boat that they are in, and that have the same hopes that they have. And and that's. That's, a, that's part of the dynamic of a movement, and it's a part of the dynamic of a movement that I think we all kind of love. Uh, but movements have to go beyond simply displaying crowds and displaying commitment. Movements have to cause trouble. Now, everybody wishes that it could be otherwise, that we could do politics, big-time politics, uh, without... Making trouble, but the fact of the matter is that it's, I think it's only when ordinary people make trouble that they have real leverage on national politics.
2: And what kind of trouble do you think we should be making uh, starting now?
3: Well, I think right away we have to work on the sanctuary movement. We ought to prevent uh, Trump from doing what he's going to try to do quickly, which is make a big display. Of deporting immigrants. Building the wall, even though he'll give the contracts to his cronies, building the wall is a little bit dubious, at least not a 2,000 mile wall, but instead he can make a big show of roundups. Now, roundups of undocumented immigrants do require the cooperation of local police, of local government, of universities, of churches of ordinary people who have to be willing to see their neighbors uh, taken away by ICE, for example. So what I like about the sanctuary resistance is that it gives so many of us things to do. We can do something about that. Uh, We have to also begin to figure out how we resist the cutbacks, for example, in food stamps and Medicaid and Social Security that assure also to be coming. And through all this, I think we have to try to better understand who our enemy is. Because one of the ways that movements have succeeded in the past is that they've driven cleavages, divisions, between different groups in the ruling coalition. The labor movement, the labor movement made it impossible for FDR to coddle the rich people who were Democrats. Uh, And then finally, of course, in the civil rights movement, uh, when LBJ and JFK tried so hard to keep the southern wing of the Democratic Party in the Democratic Party, and to do that by fudging on civil rights demands, the movement made that impossible. They forced LBJ and JFK make a decision to choose, and they chose uh, the side of of civil rights, the side of human rights. Uh, But until that happened, until the civil rights movement drove the South out of the Democratic Party, uh, we were not going to get significant uh, uh, advances in race relations in the United States.
2: You know, it's easy to be... Distracted by by Trump. If you look at just what's happened in the last week, people have uh, gotten very agitated about his recent tweets. Look at the terrible things he said about Meryl Streep. Look at the even worse things he said about John Lewis. But it seems to me that's sort of his game to be responding to his terrible tweets. I think you're right that we 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 can't. We have to focus on on bigger and more strategic forms of defiance and and disruption.
3: Yeah, I think so. And it's going to be a hard time. Uh, Resistance movements are very difficult to mount. Just look at how hard it is to uh, mobilize successful anti-war movements. But that's what we have to do now. I think we have to be wary of the fact that Trump has pulled into his cabinet all sorts of interests that did not support his campaign initially. Yeah. Uh, the Koch brothers are now connecting. This is very—it's a very dangerous time, and uh, I see no way to navigate the danger excepting to try to build a resistance movement.
2: Fran Piven wrote about the prospects for resistance in the new issue of The Nation. Fran, thanks for talking with us today.
3: Great to talk to you
2: donald trump has made it clear he will come down hard on people who criticize him during the campaign he said he would quote open up libel law so that newspapers and magazines like the nation could be sued more easily the republicans control congress now could they Open up libel law? For some answers, we turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent, the author most recently of the book Engines of Liberty, The Power of Citizen Activists to Make Constitutional Law. He teaches constitutional law, national security, and criminal justice at Georgetown University Law Center, and he just started a new job, national legal director of the ACLU. We reached him in his new office in Manhattan. Hi, David. Hi, John. So, what's your new office like?
4: It's very nice. Uh, it uh, appropriately enough uh, looks out over the um, over the water uh, and I uh, can ensure that uh, my job, I think, is by, to make sure that by the end of the day, the Statue of Liberty is still there. You can see the Statue of Liberty out your way. I wi- can see it. And if anyone tries to take it, I'm I'm ready to <laughs> defend it. <laughs> that is
2: fantastic. So what about the Republicans opening up libel law to make it easier to sue publications like The Nation? Is that possible? Is
4: that likely? Well, it's not possible for Donald Trump to do it uh, because libel law, though I don't think Donald Trump understands this, libel law is a, is a state, uh, it's a matter of state law. There is no federal libel law, and so he can't open up federal libel law. And to the extent there's federal law that governs libel, it's constitutional law. It is uh, an a emanation of the First Amendment as interpreted by the Supreme Court. So again, can't be opened up, uh, by Donald Trump. That said, he could, uh, embolden, I suppose, um, state legislatures to, uh, push the envelope on state libel laws. And he certainly is, uh, was in his prior, uh, life, uh, a, a, an avid user of the libel laws, uh, filed many, many, uh, what many would say are frivolous libel suits against uh, people who wrote negative things about him uh not because he thought he would win them but simply to bully those uh, uh those outlets into not covering him or not saying those nasty things because he had such resources and and defending a libel suit, even if it's it's frivolous, can be quite expensive.
2: Well, one of the examples that comes to mind, not exactly a libel action, but a sort of a libel-like action was when Trump sued Bill Maher who goes back on HBO uh, this week with his uh, with his show? Bill Maher had said that Trump was quote the spawn of his mother having sex with an orangutan. Uh, that was Bill Maher's response to Trump saying Obama had to prove he was not born in Kenya. And Mar ran headshots of Trump side by side with an orangutan. And I have to say the hair on their heads was remarkably similar. Uh, <laughs> and Marr said he would give five million dollars to a charity of Trump's choice if he could prove Mar was wrong. And Trump accepted the challenge, sent Bill Mar his birth certificate, and demanded the payment of the five million. and wow. bill mar Bill Mar did not pay. And Trump sued him. This is this is the man who will become our president on Friday. He sued a comedian over a joke, a joke. He can't. He he obviously
4: can't take a joke. He's shown that uh, on many, many occasions.
2: Of course, that lawsuit went uh, went nowhere. But but it is it is a bit ominous. And of course, Bill Maher did lose his show on ABC after 9-11 when he disagreed with George Bush, saying the 9-11 terrorists were Cowards, so he's a person who has paid a heavy price for criticizing the president.
4: And the, and the, and the president can set a tone, um, and that tone can have a significant chilling effect. Uh, you know, I mean, the American Bar Association during the campaign uh, appointed a special committee of experts in libel law to uh, review Trump's record as a libel plaintiff. Uh, and the the committee came back with a, a very strong report that uh, condemned Trump as essentially a bully e- e- using libel law to further his bullying ways. Um, and the ABA uh, eventually decided not to publish the report because they were afraid of getting sued by Donald Trump. Oh my gosh. <laughs> now I'm I'm confident that the nation will not be uh, cowed uh, by uh, by president uh, Trump and that many other uh, outf- outlets will not be cowed and will will push back uh, uh, strongly and I you know I actually think that the press will play a very important role in checking this administration. You know when you've got an administration that has control of both houses of Congress and will have majority uh, control of the Supreme Court effectively uh, after he gets his nominee to the court approved. You know, you have to ask where are the checks going to come from? And yeah. I think one of the places they come from is, is the press.
2: Well another one of the areas where Trump has has promised action is about flag burning. He tweeted that people who burn the American flag should be stripped of their citizenship and jailed. There was a time not too long ago when it was a crime to burn the American flag. What what exactly could Trump do now?
4: Well, not much unless he uh, unless he's able to amend the constitution, but I I wouldn't put it past him trying. No, I I actually um, litigated the 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 uh, Texas versus Johnson and United States versus Eichmann which were the Supreme Court cases from 1989 and 1990 that established Uh, that it is uh, your constitutional right to do with the flag what you like, including burn the flag, and that the the government cannot put you in jail for burning the flag. And uh, so that was, you know, 1989, the court established that principle. Apparently Trump didn't read that decision, but he also was proposing that people have their citizenship stripped for burning the flag. Years before that, in 1967, the Supreme court ruled that, you cannot have your citizenship taken away from you against your will no matter what you do whether you burn a flag or uh, or 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 take out uh, citizenship in another country or or even fight for another army or even you know engage in espionage and treason You cannot have your citizenship uh, stripped. citizenship is a constitutional right, you can give it up, just like you can give up your right to a jury trial if you do it knowingly and voluntarily and all that. But you can't have it taken from you. So in that one tweet, he proposed two uh, unconstitutional actions.
2: Trump is ignorant of, of the law and the Constitution. But what exactly can he do to his critics and and opponents as president? He can't strip them of citizenship, he can't change the libel laws, but surely there are a lot of things he can do.
4: Right. Well, I mean, you've you've already seen him, uh, you know, playing essentially playing favorites at uh, his press conference and and shutting down a CNN reporter who was asking a perfectly legitimate question because Trump didn't like what the CNN what CNN had done with respect to the uh, allegations regarding Trump and the Russians during the campaign so you know they the the access to the white house uh, is an incredibly important uh, aspect of uh, of many uh, r- reporters and publications uh, uh, job and and if he starts Divvying that out in ways that sort of go to his friends and and ice out his enemies, that can definitely have a a chilling effect, I think. And he can also, you know, he he has the bully pulpit by attacking various media outlets. uh, He can embolden others to attack those media outlets, you know, including through violence, including through hacking. Uh, you know all all sorts of uh, things. So you know I think it's I think it's critically important. Look, the First Amendment is absolutely central to our democracy working, and it 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 depends on government officials who recognize. The first principle of the First Amendment, which is that you must tolerate those whose views you disagree with, especially if you are the president of the United States. That's not a lesson that President Trump, I think, has ever learned. And, and I think there's a you know, real question whether he'll learn it in office, um, uh, but we will have to fight hard uh, to teach it to him. We have to fight
2: hard to teach him about the the First Amendment. Can you tell us anything now about the ACLU's plans for First Amendment litigation in in the weeks, months, and years to come?
4: Well, we are, you know, we're we're sort of gearing up on all fronts. We we have a constitutional defense fund. We are um, expanding in, in many of our uh, areas of our work, where it's. Quite clear that the attacks are going to come. Uh, I mean, immigration and reproductive freedom are probably the first two fronts, but we're uh, fully uh, expecting that First Amendment, uh, First Amendment attacks will come as well. That's the bread and butter of the ACLU. So we're, you know, we're prepared to to respond. Uh, We can't predict precisely where the. Where where those threats are going to arise, he hasn't. You know, you know the, what he has said is he's going to open up libel laws, and he wished he wished he could take uh, rights away from flag burners. Those are not things that are likely to happen, I think. Um, but uh, the fact that he proposed those clearly indicates that he has no respect for this amendment, and that um, therefore we uh, and other civil society organizations need, and the citizenry at large need to be very vigilant about standing up for, uh, for this right.
2: We record this program in Los Angeles, and California, of course, is sort of the epicenter of official resistance to Trump. The state of California is preparing to litigate against uh, Trump. The all the big cities have declared their their uh, status as sanctuary cities. How do you imagine this legal uh, fight between the cities and some of the liberal states might shape
4: up? It will depend on how extreme President Trump and his administration is in their actions as opposed to in their words. Um, you know, Trump as a campaigner made a lot of promises— if he came in and put those promises into practice, uh, there would be um, immediately be multiple uh, lawsuits, and he would lose uh, most of those lawsuits in my in my view. And in fact, the ACLU wrote a report called the Trump Report, which went through 15 of his campaign promises and showed exactly why they would be constitutional uh, constitutional non-starters. He's he's now gone out and. Um, appoint, uh, nominated uh, very uh, extreme appointees to almost every important post in his cabinet, which uh, suggests that they will be pushing hard. And, you know, that there are limits on how um, the federal government can penalize state and local uh, government entities. Um, and uh, I, I think it's quite likely that he will be tempted to go over those limits. He won't understand the limits in the first place, and he'll be tempted to go over those limits. But but I'm confident that if he pushes as hard, anywhere near as hard as he promised, uh, anywhere near as hard as the nominees that he's appointed suggest he's going to push, that there will be plenty of courts that will push back. Um, the, you know, there, there, the courts are tend to be sort of status quo uh, establishment biased, and, and, and Donald Trump is not. Uh, and so as he pushes uh, and, and sort of you know, seeks to impose federal sanctions on sanctuary cities and the like, there are um, constitutional principles, uh, states' rights principles and the like that can be used against him, and I think judges will be ready to use them against him.
2: David Cole, he wrote about the First Amendment versus Trump for the new issue of The Nation magazine. David, thanks for talking
4: with us today. Thanks for having me, John.
2: As we look forward to the Women's March on Washington this Saturday, we remember that Trump is the weakest person ever to become president. He lost the election by almost 3 million votes. We know he's a buffoon and a liar. He's an ignoramus and a cheat. But are we underestimating Trump? For some answers, we turn to Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation magazine. Her latest book is Pro-Reclaiming Abortion Rights. We reached her today in New York City. Hi, Katha. Hi John, how are you? I'm pretty good. I'm going to be going to the march in LA and you are going to the one in Washington? I am. And yes,
5: I'm going to march with my daughter and my cousins and the whole the whole mishpukha.
2: And what what do you imagine will happen there? What can this accomplish?
5: Well, I think Obviously, we will not be taking state power tomorrow. Um, okay. But I think it's very, I think it's very important for women and uh, the men who love them to make a very strong statement that uh, the defunding of Planned Parenthood, the criminalization of abortion, the uh, threats to LGBTQI, asterisk rights, Uh, does not go forward. It's just a whole bunch of um, very threatened um, rights that um, we need to stand up and speak up for before it's too late.
2: You know, one of the most striking and wonderful things about the plans for the marches, the sister marches that are happening all around the country. I learned about these uh, by going to the march website uh, womensmarch.com and there's a a tab, it says there's 586 sister marches. In Southern California, there are five from Ventura to Santa Ana and Laguna Beach. I looked up in my home state of Minnesota, there are four of course, St. Paul, the capital city, but also Bemidji, Minnesota Minnesota, way up north Morris Minnesota a little town in the center of the state where there happens to be a state college all over the 586 sister marches it's a wonderful thing
5: yes um, I'm really looking forward to it and it's great that it's not just in Washington because not everybody can get there
2: so are we underestimating Trump I was one of those people who said Trump couldn't win in fact I wrote an article for The Nation with the headline Relax, Trump can't win. So oh I, no. <laughs> so I'm, I'm I'm gonna blackmail you with uh, that. I'm I'm uh, believe me, I've been reminded many times since election day. I'm one of the people who underestimated Trump and I'm worried that I might be doing it again. I I see all this evidence that Trump won't succeed as president. He lost the popular vote by almost three million votes. His approval ratings are the lowest of, of any incoming president. He contradicts himself daily. He has the attention span of a of a mosquito. He'll be a huge failure, and then his supporters will see it. So should I now say, relax, Trump can't succeed?
5: No, you mustn't say that. You are the victim of wishful thinking. This is the uh, cognitive bias that I think we all have, which is to think that the things we want to happen actually have a pretty good chance of happening. I'm very persuaded by an article in Slate by Yasha Munk, Stop underestimating donald trump
2: well, let me let me ask you about some uh, of the reasons why i I am maybe guilty of underestimating Trump. First of all, these low approval ratings, lowest approval rating of anyone who ever became president. Why isn't that a sign that he's going to be a failure?
5: Well, it depends on what you mean by be a failure. I mean, he doesn't have to run for another four years, so he has plenty of time. And um, right now, it doesn't matter. He's president. He's president. And it's like people think he's a TV show that can be canceled as soon as people stop watching. Well, another thing is that he always had low approval ratings. And it turned out not to matter. Also, you know, these polls, I mean, haven't we learned to be a little bit skeptical of them? Yes. Uh, What people tell pollsters isn't always what they think. And who the pollsters ask isn't always the relevant people.
2: Uh, Okay, here's another reason that I've been focusing on. There are so many scandals brewing. These... These uh, reports of the Russian sex tapes that they were going to use to blackmail him, his refusal to release his tax returns, his refusal to put his business holdings in a blind trust, his violation of the rules on nepotism, all of these scandals. There's never been a president who took office with so many scandals already underway. Isn't that a reason why he, he will be weak and unsuccessful?
5: No. Um, but I should point out that there's another scandal brewing even as we speak. Okay. Gloria Allred is having a press conference with a woman who's come forward accusing him of sexually inappropriate behavior. But I think one thing that um, probably a great deal of American history should convince us, persuade us of is that these sexual scandals and other scandals, they matter to the people who already dislike you. Yeah. They don't matter so much to people Who like you, and we should know that from the experience of Clinton. The only people who thought, oh my God, Monica, he needs to resign right away, were people who disliked Clinton already. And it's the same with
2: this. Okay, here's another reason why Trump might not succeed. He, this attention span problem, uh, doing politics in Washington takes a lot of hard work, compromise, politics is the art of the possible. He lacks the ability to pursue anything for very long. He can tweet in the middle of the night, but he's temperamentally and intellectually uh, unfit to accomplish anything in Washington. Isn't this the reason why he won't succeed?
5: No, it's not because, because, I mean, it could be. It could be. All these things could happen, and I think we should all not predict anything ever again. But, first of all, the Republicans are going to run the government. He's going to sign whatever they put before him. He's going to concentrate on high-profile nonsense, like we're going to build a wall, make the Mexicans pay for it, but it, or make the Mexicans pay us back for it after we've paid for it. Um, and he actually... He has a pretty good attention span when his self-interest is most directly engaged. I think Mike Pence can run the government. Yeah. Uh, Paul Ryan can run the government. Yes. Oh, he can be a figurehead.
2: All right. One last argument. Trump's followers will quickly feel betrayed when they see that he's mainly in it to help rich people become richer. He's not going to bring back good industrial jobs to Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, but he will cut taxes for the rich and and you know abolish the inheritance tax. So the white working class will see his true nature and will turn against him.
5: Well, that could happen, but another thing could happen, and that is that they will think the economy is getting better when it isn't, just the way now they think the economy is terrible when in fact it's been improving. Obama is leaving the economy in pretty good shape, and that could last for a while. And then, you know, maybe, well, I didn't get a job, but I heard about somebody, you know, three towns over, and they got a job. Or he tried to give us yes. jobs, yeah. but see, that could also happen. Is, uh, he tried to give us jobs, and the Democrats, even though the Democrats have no power, are preventing him uh, out of their sheer hatred of the white working class. I think that um, we underestimate... People's ability to just believe the facts and imaginary facts that they want to believe.
2: Yeah, I think I think it's possible. In fact, we've had a lot of reporting. Reporting, your fellow columnist at the Nation, Gary Young, uh, who spent uh, the month before the election in Muncie, Indiana. When he asked people, do you really think Trump is going to bring back the good industrial jobs? They said, no, we don't we don't think so. But but at least he understands how we feel about it. And that's why we're going to vote for him.
5: Right. Um, Or as um, many voters have been reported saying, we just want to blow blow things up.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was an expressive. Um, It was an expressive vote. It was
5: an expressive vote. And if people just like Trump, they're going to keep on liking Trump.
2: Okay, you've convinced me, despite Trump's I've depressed you now. <laughs> I'm it's, depressed. It's, despite his historically low approval ratings, despite all the scandals, despite his his ignorance, despite his coming betrayal of his supporters, we must not underestimate him. He can do great evil, and he almost certainly will.
5: Yes. I think the big mistake, the big mistake is to think even though you know as liberals or whatever we are calling ourselves, you want to think, yeah. other people are basically like me. They basically have the same ideas as me and want the same things, only somehow they've gotten off on the wrong, wrong path about what that all is. I don't think that's true. I think some people want different things, and some people want a strong man. I think that's really true. And what they like about Trump is exactly the things we don't like about him, that he's a billionaire, that he cheats people, that he wins, he gets over, he has all the women he wants. They like that.
2: Final thoughts here. How how are you feeling about uh, Obama this week?
5: I think Obama was a pretty good president at a very difficult moment that the Republicans were determined that he should fail. I think he, he tried his best. But at least 20 million people have health care, that they have health insurance that they didn't have before. That's enormous. That's enormous. The fewest number of uninsured people in our history.
2: Katha Pollitt, she'll be at the Women's March on Washington this Saturday. And you can read her at thenation.com. Katha, thanks for talking with us today.
5: Thanks for having me, Tom. Take, take, the food. we
2: rich start making sense the nation podcast is co-produced by the la review of books and recorded at the studios of emerson college los angeles by ernesto Orellano, with additional technical assistance from justin allen Alan minsky is our senior producer frank reynolds is our executive producer annie shields is our engagement editor katrina Vandenhoevel is editor and publisher of the nation Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.